Suddenly, the cricket set ceases to tingle, and in the absence of anything better to do, I return to Bobby Pridden. Now, whether he wishes to impress me or what, I do not know, but the next thing Bobby Pridden says to me is, Fancy a gig with the who? I don't mind, I answer, being very cool and thinking to myself that it can't be worse than Heathrow Airport, London, England. What sort of dough, I ask? Fifteen quid, says Bobby, if you're lucky. Okay. Come down the office then, Monday. End of the week, we've got a gig in Scotland. With that, I leave Bobby Pridden and his terrible feet and continue my search for available Jack and Danny. All these years later, I cannot recall whether this search is fruitful, but the next day, I find myself in Old Compton Street in London, where Track Records, the recording company handling the Who at this time, has its offices. It's in these offices, smartly suited up in a Hepworth three-piece, that I had my first encounter with the band and the man who has such an effect on my life. I have to admit that my first sight of The Who, close up, is quite a surprise. Of course, I often watch the band perform before I actually meet them, but it is one thing to watch them playing and quite another to speak to them. My first impression is that they are four very flash geezers indeed, what with all wearing fur coats. Their hair is too long for my mod taste, but I see straight away that Daughtry is small, quiet, and a bit of a hard nut. Empwistle seems even quieter, and sort of looks into himself. Moon has a mischievous, good-looking boat race, with a million laughs tucked in behind those dark eyes. And Townsend, well, Townsend has an extremely large hooter. I do not mention this observation to Townsend, because I know that he has a reputation of being handy with his fists, when necessary. And anyway, he's generally thought to be the driving force behind the band. I do not have time to notice more than this because I am only a few moments in the office before the band agrees to Bobby's suggestion to employ me as a roadie, at least for the duration of the Scottish tour. And once this decision is made, nothing will do, but uh, we must all go down to the ship in Wardour Street and have a few bevvies. It is on the way to this pub, comfortably ensconced in a very smart two-tone Bentley, that I realise that the reason for my rapid and casual employment is not so much my magnetic personality as the fact that the geezers, who are well on their way to becoming the most famous rock and roll band the world has ever seen, are further out of it than a handful of cardinals at a bar mitzvah. Of course, this is no great surprise because the Who are practically a religious experience for all good mods, and in turn, all good mods are firm believers in communion with medicines of many types and colours. Once in the pub, I sink a couple of light and bitters, and soon find myself in a considerably inebriated state. And if that seems a relatively small amount of alcohol on which to become olivered, I can only say that at this stage I am more accustomed to take medicine in pill form. Through this quite ordinary introduction, I find myself one week later at the wheel of a Hertz rental truck loaded with the band's equipment and headed for the first gig in Scotland. The first gig of my time with Keith Moon. From the start, this must be made clear. What I'm telling you is the story of my ten years with Mooney. Ten years as Mooney's personal. Mooney's man, that is. During that time, no one knows Mooney better than me, because no one, not even his wife, spends as much time with him as me. No one sees him in the trouble I see him in. No one sees him in the states I see him in. I doubt, too, whether anyone has the laughs I have with Keith Moon. This geezer that some journalists with not much imagination but a sure eye for a quick buck, quick copy and sod the truth calls Moon 
the loon. Of course, I do not have Mooney entirely to myself, but it is true that no one has such intense contact with him as I do for the ten years up to 1977. Please do not think this is the story of the Who. It is just the story of Mooney, as I see him, and as far as it goes, it is true. Okay, here and there the incidents from several trips or tours are rolled into one big incident or trip, like making one giant spliff from several butt-ends, but this doesn't mean that each incident is not true, any more than the roaches that die for the cause of the giant joints are not smoked before they become butt-ends. What is more, this story is not a chronological narrative, simply because it cannot be either described or remembered like that. Life with Keith Moon is not a simple progression from Monday to Sunday, waking to kipping, pay packet to bank, breakfast to dinner. It is much more a glorious bugger's...